The most dangerous time for a resident in the facility is when they first enter. Some kids come in as suicidal. Some kids come in as, I don't know what's going to happen to me, so I need to make the first move. Age of entry is 15 years old into a sex trafficking or a sexual exploitation situation. There isn't a level of control that she's given to then go out and recruit and break additional girls or boys into that quote-unquote family unit. Thanks for tuning in. This is Stories from the Inside. Where juvenile justice and faith meet. I'm your host, CJ Fisher, joined along with my co-host, Chelsea Coleman. And today's guest is Rosie Garvey. She's the executive director of Scarlet Road in Seattle, Washington. Rosie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, CJ. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Scarlet Road and what you do and what Scarlet Road does. Scarlet Road is an anti-human trafficking organization and a direct services support organization. We work here in um, the Kitsap Peninsula area, just outside of Seattle, Washington, serving individuals who have been sexually exploited and victims of human trafficking. And we serve individuals, both juvenile as well as adult, in their safe exit out of trafficking situations and their long-term recovery goals to help stabilize and support them to become sustainable without us. That's incredible. Thank you so much for your work. I know in a previous episode, we've talked about sex trafficking and just the the realization that so over the last like four or five years, there's just been an increased awareness about the sex industry and how horrific sex trafficking is. So I, you know, I really appreciate the work that you and your team is doing. And thank you again for jumping on this call and being able to share some stories with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, Rosie, so excited to have you on because uh, I know I personally have seen lots of girls over the years caught up in sex trafficking. And so just uh, maybe for our listeners, maybe tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the juvenile justice system. For us in our area, in the Kitsap Peninsula area, which is where we serve, the age of entry is 15 years old into a sex trafficking or a sexual exploitation situation. The national average is actually 13 to 14 years old, but what we are seeing is 15. And that's for our our community, our county. And we are seeing that individuals who have higher rates of vulnerability are much greater risk than individuals who have stability in their life. And so When you're talking about girls and boys who are in juvenile detention uh, or on probation, there's already a heightened level of vulnerability there. So they're at much greater risk for being trafficked. So we do see a high number of victims of sexual exploitation and human trafficking that have both juvenile and adult offenses. One interesting thing, I think, is that we are seeing less juvenile offenses now because we've seen that are directly linked to trafficking, because we're seeing juveniles as victims more than we were in the past. And then we have much better laws around protecting juveniles in trafficking. However, they are still very easily first brought into the system under you know, an assault charge or under a drug charge or a truant charge. 
And it's in that process that then they're identified as being a trafficking victim. Rosie, you said that these kids have much higher vulnerability and that is a risk factor for getting involved in a trafficking situation. What kinds of, what do you mean by vulnerability? What kinds of vulnerabilities are you seeing with them? Vulnerabilities, you know, obviously look different depending on where you are. What we see most are minority vulnerabilities, poverty vulnerabilities, violence in the home or instability in the home, drug abuse in the home. And then we also could go a little bit further down the road and you might see developmental disabilities. You might see, and I think other, you know, some more subtle vulnerabilities where there's abuse, but it's maybe not outright abuse where you wouldn't necessarily peg it as abuse until you really, you know, saw a full picture of what was happening in the home environment. Um, Or it could simply be a neglect um, or an absence vulnerability. When you're talking about a 15-year-old, they are craving independence and they're experiencing rebellion, which is a positive experience for them, but it can also create a vulnerability for them if somebody is trying to take advantage of their desire for independence. So that could be a vulnerability as well. Um, And, you know, simply their age, 15 years old, there's a limited capacity to fully take control over your choices and understanding your consequences. There's a lot of peer pressure. So vulnerability can look like a lot of different things. I think we definitely see higher rates of victims of sex trafficking and exploitation within those really high rates of vulnerabilities or or really obvious vulnerabilities around minorities and uh, drug abuse and abuse and violence. And also, I should say, any type of sexual violence, if if an individual has experienced sexual violence, they're much, much greater risk of being trafficked. To hear that uh, a lot of times we have no idea until that kid gets arrested um, even if it's for an unrelated charge. Uh, it seems, seems like we're uh, trying to work upstream a little bit. Um, so that's crazy. Um, do you ever see any recruitment or like lures of predators actually in the detention centers? Oh, yeah. Uh, that is a tricky thing, though, because often the internal recruitment within detention centers is coming from peers. It's not coming from adults. Um, who are, it, it's a sort of a trickle down. You'll have an adult abuser um, or pimp who is utilizing relationships with um, other youth to do recruiting within the centers. And actually, it's an interesting story. One of the very first individuals we served in our detention center, um, she was actually a bottom girl. Um, and a bottom girl is a term for the individual who is who is being trafficked by a pimp. However, there isn't a, a level of control that she's given to then go out and recruit and bring additional girls or boys into that quote unquote family unit. So what you're seeing in some cases is these young girls or young boys being manipulated and exploited to bring in other kids into that industry, into that lifestyle. Yeah, it's a much easier route for an abuser to take. There's less speculation, there's less scrutiny, right? If they can get if they can manipulate a youth and get them to bring somebody else in, 
that youth probably isn't going to get a even taught or B they're, they're going to get a slap on the, on the wrist probably and not a charge. Um, and so it really eliminates the risk in a lot of cases for the adult abuser. It also feels safer to the victim. It's a, it's a different kind of a connection for that victim to make. Um, they aren't necessarily thinking that their peer is going to be recruiting them for prostitution. And that recruiter, the manipulation that goes along between the recruiter and, and their pimp or their abuser too, do you think there's like a level of like trauma bond and that is a factor in this as well? Definitely. Yeah, 100%. Trauma bonding that's happening with that girl or boy and their abuser, there's uh, often threat. There could be you know, manipulation and, and drug abuse as, as well as a possibility, you know, it could be a, a lot of different types of abusive trauma bonding that are happening, but there's a hundred percent trauma happening in that relationship. And it kind of is, I always use the term, it's like into domestic violence in a way, you know, there's that affection and feeling of place and love with that abuser but there's always another side to that coin. And mm-hmm. so for individuals that are bottoms, um, they often feel like it's a way that they are able to gain or maintain some level of control when their world is really out of control. So if, if I'm living or growing up in a really abusive setting or lifestyle or my life is so chaotic. And then I have, I meet, I meet this person and I feel like they're giving me some sort of like sense of love or control or belonging. I'm going to really cling to that almost. And uh, it's, al- it's almost like a, like a safety net or like coping mechanism, even though it's really unhealthy and dangerous and harmful in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Rosie, do you have a particular youth or a student that's been in your world that has impacted you recently? Yeah, gosh, we've had quite a few youth in the last year. We have, I think right now, about 40% of our aftercare clients are under the age of 25. So we've had quite a few. Um, And I, that's positive and negative also, because one, obviously I don't want to be seeing young people trafficked. But I think that what's really positive is that we're actually, because we're out in the community more, we're actually connecting with them at a younger age, which means that they're in the life a lot less time. One of the gals that we uh, recently have been working with, I got to know her over last year because she found out that she was pregnant with her third child right around the same time that I found out I was pregnant, actually. And so we kind of like were able to build a friendship over some of those similarities. And uh, she'd been in our aftercare program. I think she had just entered in just right around the same time that she found out she was pregnant. And she didn't have custody of her two other children. And so I think at the time she was 19 or 20. So not very old, right? Her other two children were very young as well. 
And as she has sort of like grown through our program, her story was that she had been trafficked and abused very young. She had started being trafficked when she was about 13 years old, I think. And I think it was through originally through familial trafficking, which is not uncommon uh, for us. We see that pretty often where family members will exploit another young family member. And then from there, because her home life was so disruptive, you know, she dipped out early um, and went on the streets. And I think that I'm trying to remember all the nuances of her story. I know that when she was on the street, she met her current pimp uh, or her former pimp. um, And he exploited her through that avenue, through prostitution. And when she entered into our program, she really didn't have vision or direction for her life. I mean, she was just sort of floundering. She was very young. She had a lot of things in her life that were extremely overwhelming. Um, she wanted to be able to parent again, but she didn't really have the skills to parent. She, you know, her, she didn't have a trajectory for her life at all. And so over the last, well, she's been at our program now for about a a year and a half, but during that period of time that we were able to get to know each other, um, last fall was really kind of when I got to know her a little bit more. One of the things I saw change in her was this understanding of what it meant to be a parent. One of the things that our case manager worked on with this young gal quite a bit was building parenting skills and what it meant to sort of change her perspective on life to actually be a parent and not a kid anymore. And that was a really significant transition for her in that period of her life. You know, she was right on the cusp of teenagehood and adulthood and trying to figure out those, you know, that balance of what it means to grow up and what it means to change her perspective. And she was able to, I think it was in January, she had her her third baby in December, early December. And in January, she was able to get a full-time job. And she really started to to be successfully working and maintaining stability in her life and being able to see her children and really pour into her children and to parent her children and to really change how she, as no longer a kid, was now going to be an adult pouring into these kids, which was a, a complete 180 from where she came in our doors, you know, nine months earlier. And not to say that she's done with her journey by any means, and there's going to still be a lot of ups and downs, but that was a really significant curve for her. I think another really important thing that she had to work through was what healthy relationship could and should look like. Uh, And that impacted her parenting journey, but it also impacted her lifestyle. She had a, a really significant default in her life where her relationships were not healthy. And I think that went all the way back, you know, from her childhood, not just from her experience in the life, but, but beyond that, she's been able to build a really strong bond and a healthy relationship with her case manager and with her mentor. And both of those now are mirroring relationships that she can take 
forward, both with her family, but also with the new community that she builds around her to support her. So I'm I'm hearing a, a couple of things here with her story, just the value of having positive adults come alongside her, healthy relationships being taught and modeled, really, again, like just being in, in community with with other people. And then of course, her having, you know, employment opportunities and, and all of that, that that's awesome. Are there any other interventions that you see that are really successful or work really well? We were in our juvenile detention center, as well as in our local schools. And the reason that we were in our local schools, as well as the detention school, one of the reasons for that was to help educate and protect youth from becoming victimized, right? But most of the time when we're in that classroom, kids already know probably 80 to 90% of the information that we're sharing with them. So it isn't so much that we're educating them on things that they don't already know. But what we're educating them on is how to understand this issue from a different perspective. So they might know that there's a pimp who's talking to girls and maybe they know who those girls are, but they don't really have a relationship with them or they're not even necessarily seeing it as a risk. And so turning that coin a little bit for them and helping them understand, A, what the risk is, but B, what their value is and why it's important that they actually have good boundaries and have healthy relationships and that people respect those boundaries that they have. It actually gives them a a different level of understanding for why exploiting somebody's body is wrong. And I think it kind of opens up their world. And we see this not just with the girls that are in the classroom, but actually with the boys that are in our in our classroom education as well, for them to understand one, how detrimental the life is for somebody who gets involved in it and how abusive and dangerous it is, but also how easy it is for them to change our perspective and um, respect the women in their classroom, the girls in their classroom, right? And have an understanding for how porn actually might be impacting um, those girls are impacting their understanding of how we should be treating women. And so we talk about a lot of different things. It's not just sexual exploitation. It's also, you know, pornography, it's healthy relationships, it's boundaries, it's learning how to live a healthy lifestyle as we experience each other in different genders and, and sexuality and how to do that in a way that we're protecting each other and respecting each other. And so I think that, that we are able to kind of just infuse a little bit of truth in those curriculums. And obviously, Scarlet Road is a Christian organization, but we cannot, you know, proselytize or evangelize in the school systems at all or in our juvenile detention center either. They they don't give us that freedom to do that in this setting, within the school settings. But we are able to really infuse that truth for how God wants us to be you know, living in community with each other and supporting each other and, and building stability together as a community. I think that's really a critical piece, actually. And and when somebody learns those things, when we have a student who learns those things, they see maybe that person that they were like, oh, she's just hanging out with that pimp or whatever. Or she's a hoe or whatever. Right. They're labeling that person. They actually end up seeing that person as somebody who needs help or needs support or who they want to have compassion and empathy for. And 
maybe they'll go and talk to their teacher and be like, or to the facilitator of the classroom curriculum and say, you know, I'm really concerned about this person. I didn't really realize that they could be in so much danger or I didn't see them in this way. And now I understand this issue in a whole different way. So what kind of outcomes are you seeing? Okay, so a kid caught up in sex trafficking, but there's no intervention. You know, you know what happens? I guess that's part A of the question. And then when we have interventions like the ones you just described, uh, what kind of outcomes are you seeing with them? Well, with absolutely no intervention, there's very little likelihood that a juvenile victim will actually end up leaving the life there's a higher likelihood that they will either die of drug abuse or violence or murder, both by either their pimp or a customer. It's not unusual that their customers are very violent. And so I think, I don't know if this is still an accurate number. I remember a while back, there was a number that a juvenile who falls into a life, the life will on average die within seven years. So if they fall victim before they turn 21, they won't make it past their 28th birthday. Uh, And that's just because the industry is so violent. Uh, And that's just the average, right? There are definitely individuals who do come out on the other end or end up being exploited their whole life. But it's a very bleak outcome. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, right? The trauma the level of trauma that a juvenile experiences in the life is so detrimental that they really lose the capacity to be able to just say, this is it, I'm done. In a lot of cases, I'm I'm done with this life. I want to just walk away. And there are a lot of additional barriers we don't often think about preventing somebody from leaving. If they enter in when they're 15 or 16 years old, you know, they don't have a high school education, they don't have a driver's license, they don't have any employment history, they don't have stable housing outside of their abuser, they don't have, you know, any kind of income or, you know, stability in their life outside of their abuser. And often they don't feel like they are able to go back to their home in a way that they feel safe because of the shame and the trauma that they've involved. And they may just feel like they just don't know how to talk about it with their former support system. And that in and of itself can really lock them into the situation that they're in. The level of shame and the labels that our society puts on individuals in the life or in sexual exploitation, uh, while it has gotten better because of all the awareness, it is still pretty severe. Uh, and and it is um, can be a huge, huge barrier. So there's emotional barriers, there's physical barriers, there's often substance abuse barriers that substance abuse can, you know, is often used either as a manipulation tool or as a coping tool uh, for the trauma that they're experiencing. So the outcome is bleak. It's not good. We've seen it over and over and over again. And what we see is when we have a missing child who falls into prostitution, usually that missing child is not found alive in the long run. And it may be that they die when they're 25 or 28, but they're typically, life, their lifespan is typically very short. 
So if we have an individual who is located, who is referred to a support agency, who understands their trauma, like Scarlet Road or another, you know, there's a lot of different agencies out there now working with youth. If they are able to have a support system that wraps around them and addresses all of the things that we talked about, that I talked about earlier, the physical barriers, the mental health barriers, the emotional barriers, and just the daily life routines that have to be rebuilt. Traditionally, we're seeing really, really positive outcomes. And we're seeing people that have a life trajectory that kind of, as I talked about with the the one girl earlier, that really their trajectory just turns 180. And that doesn't mean that they don't have long-lasting impact from being in the life and being in that type of abuse, but they are able to regain control over their life, build healthy patterns and healthy coping mechanisms in their life. And they're able to manage their trauma in a way that they were not able to before. However, it takes a long time. So we're not seeing this be a quick fix. And even if somebody is in the life for a short amount of time, let's say they're only in the life for maybe six months or a year, the trauma that is inflicted, even in that short amount of time, can take years and years and years to work through and get to a healthy place. So for us at Scarlet Road, our aftercare program typically is two to three years long. And it's it's not, we never have a specific end date for a client because we, we don't know, you know, all of the different things that that person needs to work through. And often when they first enter into our program, those things aren't clear to us. So they evolve over time because more and more of their story comes out and more as they feel safe and they trust us, there are different barriers that start to, to surface that we need to work through. And it's a lot right? If you have a ton of physical barriers and a ton of mental health barriers, those things just take time to address and to work through. Um, But we are seeing that if a client is able to leave the life and stay out of the life for a six to 12 month period of time, they're really much more likely to stay out of the life forever and not to go back. And if they are able to build, like you said, Chelsea, a healthy community that's supporting them, uh, in a variety of different ways, they are less likely to go back to the life as well. So it's it's not just about the outcome. It's about what are we providing for that individual? How are we wrapping around that individual in a way that they feel like their A, needs are being met, B, able to take control over what they want for their future and what their life, what they want their life to look like. And see that they feel like they have the support to achieve that. So, yeah, I don't know if that kind of answers your question. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And just for our listeners, as they're listening and processing, if there are ways that they want to be involved or come alongside a young person who has been caught up in this, um, how would you suggest that they uh, do that? How do they get involved? What are some steps that they take? So first of all, I would say the really ideally would get in contact with a direct service organization like ours, like Scarlet Road, who 
is working with individuals on a recovery journey because when they get in touch with them, probably, I mean, if it was, if it was ours, we would say, yes, we would love to get you involved. However, um, we want you to really understand this issue in a deeper and greater way. Uh, and so you have to go through these trainings. And so education and training is a really critical piece. And every agency provides that in a little bit different way. But I think most anti-trafficking agencies like ours will have a pretty high bar set for that because we don't want individuals to be re-victimized or re-traumatized in that helping journey. But there are tons out there and way more than there used to be, uh, which is phenomenal. When we started Scarlet Road 12 years ago, there were very, very few organizations out there, and now there's a ton. So I think Googling is a great way to get your feet wet as far as what's in my area. And then I think if you want to learn more and kind of just sort of build a foundation, if you don't have much of a foundation, I would encourage you to go to the Polaris Project. It's a great place to get um, just a real basic understanding of the issue. That's where our National Human Trafficking Hotline is housed through this Polaris Project. And they also have a, a referral list of agencies across the nation um, that are working with victims. You can help youth directly or adults directly um, as far as mentoring and support in their recovery journey. But there's also a lot of different opportunities in outreach and um, in, you know, administrative support, right? Each one of these agencies is a nonprofit, which means we are heavily reliant on volunteers to support, as I'm sure your guys' you know, JJM agencies are as well. And so it requires a lot of support from our community to just have the hands and feet to get everything done that needs to get done. Rosie, listening to you share the work that you're doing, it, it stirs up a, an anger inside towards just the industry and just the, the loss of innocence, I guess, that our youth are encountering. And it's breaking my heart to hear that, you know, without any intervention, they may never leave. They may never get out. I think about what scripture says, talking in Proverbs and Isaiah and Psalms and other books of the Bible. It's just, it's talking about you know, we got to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves or who don't know to speak up. I mean, we need to step in to helping and being involved. I can think of one young lady that I talked to just in my own county. And she, I mean, I'm surprisingly, she was very open just about her involvement in the sex industry and just being able to leave that and be rescued out of that. But still struggling with the aftermath of that, finding herself in juvenile detention and nobody wanting her and, you know, not having a home. And so the safest, best place for her that she felt at the time was in jail. And the work that you're doing is a vital work and a needed work. Thank you for you. And I, I just want to say thank you to the other organizations out there that are, are doing this hard work. Our guest has been Rosie Garby, Executive Director for Scarlet Road. For the rest of her story, please keep a lookout for part two. We would encourage you to look up your local Youth for Christ or any organization working with justice-involved youth. Also, if you want to get involved with this podcast or serve with your local juvenile justice ministry, please visit 
www.jjminabox and we will contact you and help you get connected. Organizations and ministries like Juvenile Justice and others need funding and people to serve. We would encourage you to go to their websites and get involved and or give if you're able to. You've been listening to Stories from the Inside, where juvenile justice and faith meet. I've been your host, CJ Fisher, joined along with my co-host, Chelsea Coleman. We look forward to sharing our stories with you in the future.